Our scripture this reading this morning is found in Matthew 6. Matthew 6. I think one thing that I find so encouraging about baptisms is with all the troubles and bad news we have in the world, God is still moving. Amen. He's still moving his kingdom forward, and, and I find that so encouraging. Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, if the light that is in you is in darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? In which one of you, being anxious for your life, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Open your Bibles now to keep your finger in Matthew 6. And turn over to Matthew 13. In Lucy Maud Montgomery's book, Anne of the Island, Anne of Green Gables, as we know her, goes to visit a friend named Ruby who has been dying for quite some time of tuberculosis and is now in her final days. Ruby however, has been living in denial and was described as so often happy and hopeful 
chattering of her boyfriends and all the drama of her relationships. As Ruby was getting close to death, Lucy Maud writes, these conversations for Anne, which had once been silly or amusing, were gruesome now. It was death peering through the willful mask of life. One night, during a moonlit visit, Ruby has a moment of clarity and she confesses to her friend, I don't want to die, Anne. I'm afraid to die. I'm not afraid that I won't go to heaven. I'm a church member. But I think that it will all be so different. And I'll get frightened and be homesick. Heaven must be beautiful. The Bible says so. But Anne, it won't be what I'm used to. Anne then has a moment of silent reflection. It was sad, tragic, and true. Heaven could not be what Ruby had been used to. There had been nothing in her frivolous life, her shallow ideals and aspirations, to fit her for that great change, or to make the life to come seem to her anything but alien and unreal and undesirable. Ruby would be leaving everything she cared for. She had laid her treasures up on earth only. She had only lived solely for the little things in life, the things that pass, forgetting the great things that would go into eternity. As the story would go, that night, Ruby's soul would be summoned. And it's a summons we all must answer. Let's pray. Your law, O Lord, is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts are right. Rejoice in the heart. So, Lord, this morning as we approach your word, we pray that you would revive our soul, give us wisdom, and rejoice our hearts. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. This is now the fourth in our series of the parable of the sower. And as we've looked at before, yes, there is the imagery of the sower and the imagery of the seed. What we've discovered is that the primary theme of this parable is the condition of the hearts of men, of which there are only four. In the first of our series, the parable of the sower, we looked at how the seed of the gospel lands on the hard path. We saw how the parables were a type of code. They were easy to break if you wanted to, as they were a cipher not for the mind, but for the heart. Yet Jesus would quote Isaiah, stating the lack of understanding from the hard heart was a result of the people having closed their ears. They had closed their eyes. Then for part two, there is hope for the hard heart. We saw that while on the cross, Jesus prayed for the hard hearts who were determined against him and were crucifying him. We saw the results of Christ's prayer to forgive them 
and how a short time later, tens of thousands were saved. And this is our hope. This is our hope for the hard soil or the rocky soil, the weedy soil, that the soils can change. That through the power of Christ, we can change. Last week, we looked at the rocky soil, a somewhat willing heart that immediately receives the gospel with joy, even enduring for a little while. But when tribulation arises on account of the word, they go just as quickly as they come. The third type of soil, which we'll be looking at this morning, is found in Matthew 13, verse 7. Look there. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Now for the meaning of verse 22. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The seed that falls in the soil almost seems to have a fighting chance. It's not the rock-hard path that wants nothing to do with the gospel, nor does the heart in the rocky soil that withers and dies under tribulation on account of God's word. This soil seems soft and otherwise good for plant growth, but it's got a unique problem all of its own. It's full of weeds. In contrast, the rocky soil in which the new sprout withered under the sun, this plant is getting no sun at all. The little things in life have been allowed to grow up and take precedence. They have been focused on, nurtured, and even expected. The use of weeds to describe our everyday cares and distractions is fitting as they are so prolific. Our cares are everywhere, and our whimsical distractions seem to have an inexhaustible supply. If you tend a garden, you know what I mean. You pull one weed, and ten more come and take its place. Constant energy and focus are needed to try to stay ahead of them, even when it's hot and humid outside. It's for this reason that I leave the gardening to my wife and kids. Because <laughs> you really have to enjoy what you are doing. I start out all optimistic. In the spring, I till up all the earth and I add uh, compost and fertilizer to it and cultivate the neat little rows in the clean, fresh soil. But within a few weeks, my desire to do battle with the weeds begins to wane. And if left to me, it would just be a simple matter of time before our little garden boxes would look like the Amazon jungle. This ongoing battle with the weeds of our cares and desires is so crucial that Jesus would spend a large part of his Sermon on the Mount with this very topic. Flip back to Matthew 6, which we read earlier. Jesus would not only clearly outline these cares and desires in detail, but then would deliver them with a stern warning. Do not... Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys 
and where thieves do not break in and steal. In these two verses, Jesus gives us a physical reason for not storing up our treasures here on earth. And I think it'd be easily summarized as this. Everything, everything you ever own will one day end up in the trash heap. Sobering thought. So much time, so much energy accumulating, gathering, building, decorating, yet given enough time, it will all be physically destroyed. While our minds are still visualizing our cars and houses and cherished knickknacks being thrown away piece by piece into the dumpster, Jesus follows up with a spiritual reason not to lay up your treasures on earth. Do not lay up yourself treasures on earth, and now verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This sermon of Jesus is speaking right to us as we are well beyond the basic needs of life having so much that we own or so much that owns us. Our wealth and prosperity move our problems up higher and higher in the social schemes where we can now afford to worry about some rather outlandish things. It has been said that if you have food, you have lots of problems. If you don't have food, you have just one. Well, we have lots of food, don't we? First world problems, we call them. Like when our Wi-Fi signal does not cover the entire house. Oh, the humanity. The secular psychiatrist Theodore Dalrymple, who works in the mental health hospitals of England, notes the effect on society when our daily bread is more or less assured, even regardless of conduct. Thus, he says of his patients, they have nothing to fear, nothing to hope. If they work at all, it's in jobs that provide little stimulus. This, along with no thought for God, what is left to them but entertainment and personal relationships. With all the necessities of life covered in abundance, all that is left to pursue is our own personal happiness. It does not take much in the way of investigation to discover that society's pursuit of happiness is not only a focus, but that happiness has become part of our meaning, part of our self-worth. And woe to those who do not affirm our choices that make us happy. One simply needs to observe our high school friends, coworkers, or go online to find that the weeds 
of happiness and self-expression are now at the core of our identity. It's where our collective heart is. And in case you are not feeling happy, you can always visit happiness.com or subscribe to Happyful Magazine or Live Happy or Happiness or Rise of Happiness, Happiness Weekly in which you'll find such articles as 10 ways to improve your happiness, how to be happy, how you can become happier, the secret to happiness, cultivating happiness, why happiness is important, the psychology of happiness, and three tips for genuine happiness. And in case these don't work, we can even try to mandate happiness with the United Nations even proclaiming March 20th as the International Day of Happiness. With all this focus on happiness, two conclusions can be safely drawn. One, feeling good about ourselves take up, takes up an extraordinary amount of focus. And two, even with all this focus, it doesn't seem to be working. King Solomon would put all of this to the test in a grand experiment and writes this in Ecclesiastes. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Solomon then indulges himself with everything under the sun, including laughter, wine, houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, pools, servants, flocks, silver, gold, and the treasure of kings, singers, and many women. And so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. And I found great happiness, and my soul finally found its meaning. Is that what it says? No. No. Instead, his refrain is this. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. It was empty. Happiness is so fickle. One moment you have it, and then it's gone. The relationships, money, drink, music that made us happy yesterday is empty today. And what a demonic and pathetic irony that we would attach our meaning to that which is so fickle. That the value of our souls will be based on that which we could never fully achieve. It should be no surprise then at the mental health tsunami of our time. Souls desperately trying to find themselves in something they can never hold on to in this life or the next. If I haven't ruined your happiness yet, hang on. 
Because for those of us who are church members, there is a second warning for chasing after the wind. As the knapweeds and ivy choke out the seed of the gospel as we chase after the mundane, the frivolous things of life, there is another threat looming. Look now to Matthew 20, or 6, verse 27. And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? Which one of us, by getting wrapped up in the things of this world, is going to halt the inevitable summons of our soul? Death is concerning, but this is not what is frightening. What is alarming is that in our vain attempt to serve two masters, we want Jesus, but we want our things too. And so maybe heaven can wait. I get this. When I was a teenager, I didn't want the world to end. I at least had my driver's license. And then maybe the Lord could hold off coming back until I got married. And then maybe wait till I had kids. Then maybe, Lord, retirement. Grandkids. May the Lord have grace for our childish and low view of heaven. Otherwise, in holding on to our earthly treasures in pursuit to the bitter end, heaven slowly becomes the enemy. Who wants to go to strange and fearsome heaven when you are living your best life now? Like young Ruby, the church member who we read about earlier, even in her dying days, so much of her conversation and energy spent on drama, boyfriends and relationships. And so much so that heaven and all that is holy drifts further and further from her thoughts to the point of being alien, unreal, and undesirable. Jesus is sending a warning. Should your soul be summoned today, would you be leaving everything you cared for? Is the thought of heaven alien and foreign? Are thoughts of your own death shouted down? This summons will come upon all who walk the earth, and Jesus would give this warning later in his ministry. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And the day the Lord will come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who walk the face of the earth. Death is meant to be a wake-up call. It's meant to give us perspective. 
to remind us that there is coming a great and mighty change and that only the weighty things of God will go on to eternity. It's no wonder that a society that is happiness-based wants nothing to do with thoughts of their own mortality. When speaking to funeral directors is a relatively new phenomena and that families want very small or private funerals or not have a funeral at all. Instead of facing death with a time of mourning which is proper and often necessary, they relate that relatives of the deceased don't want to acknowledge death and so at times will not even attend a loved one's funeral. While death should melt away frivolity, the willful mask of life is even noticed in the graves of the dead as family members imprint in stone what their loved ones lived for. Have you ever noticed this? Walk through a cemetery and, and what do you see? Pictures of farms, trucks, dirt bikes, music imprinted in these tombstones, horses, pictures of golf. And although there are some exceptions, for the most part, these are monuments to lives lived for the infestation of the little things. And the seed of the gospel didn't stand a chance. So what do we do? How do we start picking? Not in a million years could we pick and subdue these weeds for they are part of the curse. Listen as I read Genesis 3. And Adam, to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded of you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till ye return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Sons of Adam, because you have fallen short of the glory of God, you will be picking weeds until the day you die. No matter how hard we work, no matter how good a gardener we are, defeating the curse and pulling the weeds of the heart is not something we can accomplish ourselves. Jesus will have to pick the weeds. Are you willing to surrender your pursuit of happiness? It's quite an ask if that's how you find your identity, isn't it? 
Jesus would give us this reminder. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Yet forfeits his own soul. The invitation here is to die to yourself and allow the Lord to make you into a new creation. And this is the imagery that we saw this morning, isn't it? The testimonies that we heard. We heard the language of repentance and surrender. And I loved the resulting words. Meaning. Purpose, peace, and true joy. Fantastic testimonies, young people. And as they were put under the water, this represented dying with Christ, dying to self, dying to the cares and pleasures of this world. And as they were raised out of the water, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that they too may walk in the newness of life. Being born again, this is how the weedy soil is made into good soil. This is how the garden is tilled clear of weeds. Once our nature is made new, the Lord changes the price tags. The things that once seemed so desirable are not longed for anymore. This is the contrast between those who are born again and the unregenerate. Verse 32 of Matthew 6 says, For the Gentiles seek after these things. The things in trivial pursuits are what the unbeliever strives for. But our designer knows that we need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things shall be added unto you. The life of heaven, not foreign, but started now. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and instead of happiness, you will be given joy. Joy in spite of circumstance. Joy in trials. Joy in contentment. Joy of knowing our future hope in Christ, even when we are not feeling happy. Joy in sickness, the joy of forgiveness and the resulting peace with God. And instead of fearing the summons of our souls, we can joyfully long for his return. Once born of the Spirit and the newness of life, 1 John says this, And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him. 
and not shrink in shame at his coming. Anne would leave her friend that night and to listen to what Lucy Maud writes. The evening with Ruby had changed something for her. Life held a different meaning, a deeper purpose. On the surface, it would go on just the same, but the depths had been stirred. It must not be with her as with poor butterfly Ruby. When she came to the next life, it must not be to face the next with shrinking terror of something wholly different, something for which a custom thought and ideal and aspiration had unfitted her. The little things in life, sweet and excellent in their place, must not be the things lived for. The highest must be sought and followed. The life of heaven must be begun here on earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning. Lord, that instead of our souls being based on the meaning of so much that is so fickle in our world, Lord, we can instead, as we heard in the testimonies this morning, have peace. We can have meaning and purpose and true joy. So Lord, I pray for those here Lord, who for heaven is a scary thought, pushing down the thoughts of their own mortality. Lord, that they would heed your warning. Lord, that if they notice that the things of this life are, are choking out any thought of you, Lord, that they would take action. Lord, that they too would repent and surrender their will to you. Lord, we ask that you seal your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.